This week's podcast focuses on ageing, and we're going to hear from three experts in the field. Camilla Cavendish is a politician and journalist who's the author of Extra Time, Ten Lessons for an Ageing World. She's talking here with Joan Bakewell, the veteran broadcaster and Labour peer, author of The View From Here, Life at 70 and Stop the Clocks, Thoughts on What I Leave Behind. But first, we're going to hear from Sarah Harper, Oxford Professor of Gerontology, Director of the Oxford Institute of Ageing, and author of How Population Change Will Transform Our World. Here she is, talking about the sheer length of time that we are now living. On April the 15th this year, the last final link to the 19th century was broken. Emma Morano died at 117 years old in the town that she had been born in northern Italy, right at the end, November 1899. And we believe she is the last living person from that century. She hands over the longest-lived person to a woman called Violet Brown, who lives in Jamaica, also 117, but born just in the early 1900s. Neither of them have achieved the longest living life, and that's held by Jean Calmont of France, who made 122 years and 164 days, and died in 1997. In the 18th century, there were about 10 centenarians in the whole of Europe, now we have 14,500 centenarians, that's people aged 100, just here in the UK. And the predictions are that by the end of this century, the 21st century, we will have one and a half million centenarians just living here in the UK. Currently at the moment, we have about half a million people in their 90s. We have 850 people aged 105 or over just here in the UK. We are aging dramatically, and we are aging without radical science. Neither Emma, Violet, or Jean, they didn't have stem cell therapy. They didn't have 3D-printed hearts, and as far as we know, they did not undergo a calorific restricted diet. They achieved their long lives by good health, good genes, and probably good luck. Much of the argument about endurance and the durability of life focuses on inequality, affluence, and privilege. Here's Sarah Harper's talking about the introduction of the welfare state and what pensions originally meant and indeed what they now mean. If we look at when uh, Beveridge introduced the old age pension, he chose 65. At that age, half of manual male workers were dead before 70. He did not produce a pension to support us in a very, very long retirement. What he was doing was a social welfare. In other words, if these people were too frail to work, the pension would kick in and support them until they died. And very much one retired from work when one could work no longer. Then what happened uh, during the 50s and the 60s was this concept of retirement as a period of rest. It was good to have a period of rest following a long uh, working life. The rhetoric, which then came in in the 70s and 80s, was very interesting. 
the rhetoric was much more around reward. We're going to reward hard-working men and women for all that labour by giving them a period of retirement. By then, in fact, we were pushing back life expectancy. So male manual workers didn't have three or four years post-65. If they were lucky, they could get into their 70s and die uh, potentially up to 10 years uh, afterwards. The really interesting thing here is that, of course, it coincided with the Second World War generation coming into retirement. And I think there's a very nice link between all that literature around building homes for heroes to reward those young men to reward of a good, sensible retirement where they could actually have some kind of leisure and enjoyment as a reward for giving up their youth in the Second World War. And then a very interesting thing happens in the 80s and 90s, and retirement becomes a right. I have a right to a period of leisure after my labour. And I think it's something that we've all internalised, and most people would say, of course, I have a right to some leisure at the end of my life. But it's a very, very new construct. And the interesting thing is, it happened at a time when we started really pushing back our life expectancy. I don't know whether any of you are aware how many years you are gaining. At the moment, just general life expectancy in this country, without any kind of the science that I'm going to talk about in a minute, we're talking about roughly two and a half years per decade. Or 15 minutes an hour. So if you sit here for an hour, you have 15 minutes extra life to go and spend in the bar or wherever you would like to. So we began to push back life expectancy. That was a demographic change to do with falling morbidity and mortality rates. At the very same time, another demographic came around. This was the post-war baby boomers in the 80s and 90s started to come into our labour markets. And there was this problem. We had huge youth unemployment, if you remember, in this country at that time. And one way of solving that was by casting out older workers. So we created early retirement. Don't stay on until you're 65. You can retire in your 50s. If we look at the figures in France, in 1970, on retirement, across all men in France, they had 10 years on average before they died. By the turn of the millennium, they had 22 years. Not just because we'd pushed back life expectancy, but because they were retiring earlier and earlier. If I take a very personal story, uh, my father worked for IBM for 30 years. He retired in the 80s, aged 54, and he, I remember him once saying, I would like to be an IBM pensioner longer than I've been an IBM employee. Well, he died in 2015, and he had been, he had worked for IBM for 30 years, he had been a pensioner for 32 years. <laughs> but what a crazy situation we have our, got ourselves into. We say to young people, stay in school until you're in your mid-twenties. You know, go to university, get education. Really good. Oh, but you can retire in your mid-fifties. Oh, and incidentally, you may well be living well into your nineties. And it is this particular period. It is Peter Lazlitt's third age. That period between when we stop working for some reason, nothing to do with biology anymore, it's socially constructed, and when we enter frailty, that has become really problematic. Here's Sarah Harper again, talking about what the classical writers might know about now, what the Brazilians might know better than anyone, and about the difference between 
fluid and crystallized intelligence. But let's just look at some of the other things um, that we find out. Psychology. Uh, Plato was right about that. Uh, when we have looked at uh, research into very long lives, those people who make it to a century, to 105 years, to a supercentenarian, which is 110, one of the few things that we can find in common is personality, optimism. Optimistic people live longer than pessimistic people. Remember that. <laughs> but it may be something to do with your personality, so you may not be able to change it. Okay. But it is Cicero who really, I think, is the most exciting. So Cicero writes, there are no vices among older men which cannot be found among younger men. He is talking here about the life course. And he says, this is written 2,000 years ago, we lay the foundations of our old age. If we live badly in our youth, we may come to be morally reprehensible and physically dependent in later life. If we live well early on, we can look forward to active old age with all the external and internal goods longevity entails, authority, honor, wisdom, and serenity. The failure of the body and mind in old age is due to youthful dissipation. Now, we know that that is absolutely right. We know that life course is so important. We know, in fact, that your experience in the womb is going to dictate your health in later life. We know what you ate and drink as a child is going to have an impact on your old age, your education, etc. Cicero really understood this. But I think what is quite extraordinary is, is this. So the other thing that uh, Cicero does in the conversation with Cato is that he uh, predicts or talks about what are the greatest fears of old age? And he came up with the four greatest fears of old age 2,000 years ago. And the first one was ill health. That is what people fear most about going into old age, ill health. My group in Oxford, 2,000 years later, does a big survey, 44,000 people in 24 countries looking at attitudes and behaviours among people over 40 towards old age. Number one fear ill health. His second fear is lack of occupation. Not work, but lack of occupation. Our second fear in our survey, lack of occupation. His third fear was slightly difficult, but I think we, we can um, bring it on board. He said the third thing that, and this was men, because it was talking about men, men fear, is the decline in physical pleasure. Now, we didn't really ask people about physical pleasure in later life, but we had a Brazilian sample. And I have to say that the number one concern among Brazilian men and women was lack of sex in old age. Now, I don't know whether we have any Brazilians in the audience, but because we were British, we didn't quite know how to cope with this. Um, <laughs> But we did a series of interviews with Brazilian men and women, and I have to tell you, it was a real concern. The men were concerned that they would not be able to perform, and the women were concerned that their husbands wouldn't be able to perform. <laughs> so to a certain extent, I think we can say that, um, at least in that area, Cicero uh, was right. And his fourth one was fear of death, and I'm going to come back to that uh, at the end. But this is another, I think, quite extraordinary thing that Cicero had picked up. 
because he gets Cato in this discussion to say the following. Activity is not just the physical activity of the young, it is of the mind. Our power to act nobly, our right to authority, it increases with age because these are the product of thought, character and judgment, all of which grow stronger with experience. Now, of course, what we now understand is that we have two very broad different types of intelligence. We have what is called fluid intelligence, and that starts declining from adolescence onwards. And we have crystallized intelligence, and that increases across our life spans. Some people even arguing that it can peak in our 70s, or in some people even in our 80s. Now, here are Camilla Cavendish and Joan Bakewell talking about ways in which to keep yourself fresh and motivated in older age, and exercised. How do we stay bright? Okay. So, there's a chapter in the book about the brain. Um, I did quite a lot, of, I tried out quite a lot of brain training apps for this book, um, and I did a lot of research into that, and a lot of what we're all going to be sold in the next 10 years is rubbish. I just want to say that now. There's a massive market in, you know, Nintendo games, Brain Age 2, whatever you like, you know, thing. there have been several cases, court cases in America, taking companies to court for overclaiming. However, there are some things that we now know about the brain. One is it remains plastic forever. There are new neurons being created in the brains of 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, right up until death. The challenge is, how do we incorporate those new brain cells into the functional circuits of the brain and make them last? So the experiments they've done on mice are really interesting in this regard. Old mice can learn as fast as young mice if you put them in a stimulating environment. So mice on wheels in kind of Disneyland environments have had a wonderful time. They've met other mice, and they've started producing more, literally more brain cells in their hippocampus. And those brain cells have started to connect into the neural pathways, and they've got better at remembering mazes and all sorts. Now, when they looked at why that was, they found two things. They found that aerobic exercise was the main factor in creating the new brain cells, but that wasn't enough to get them incorporated in a lasting way. What really mattered for incorporating them was the socialization and the meeting other mice. Now, you can see where I'm going with this. Um, and Beatrice, a Potter, of... Beatrice Potter was never across this, was she? <laughs> Socialising fat mice. Socialising fat, well, they're not so fat after they've been running on the wheel. But that, you know, you can see where I'm going. There's a lot of human research that echoes the same thing. And, you know, when half of all 75-year-olds say that the TV is their main form of company, we have a problem. Um, and we need to get those people out, and we need to start connecting with each other. But it's also very positive, because neuroplasticity changes everything we thought. We thought the window closed in childhood on learning new skills. And in some cases, you can't, I think, perfect a foreign accent beyond the age, much beyond the age of 10. But in most cases, you can learn new things. So taking up the violin, I mean, you know, I don't particularly want to take up the violin, but clearly taking up a, a musical instrument has robust research behind it. Learning a new foreign language, robust research behind it that that actually does improve your brain. And one or two of the brain training apps out there, which I do write about in the book, also have robust research behind them. What about doing crosswords regularly? Okay. This is the question. This is the question everybody asks. Um, 
And there was a famous, famous study, I think it was University of Virginia many years ago, which appeared to show that doing crossword puzzles is really good for your brain. Unfortunately, <laughs> what the truth is that clever people like doing crossword puzzles, and their rate of cognitive decline is exactly the same as people who don't do crossword puzzles. So the real issue and the thing that comes out of all the neuroscientific research is that you need to challenge yourself. So doing a crossword puzzle is great if you don't do them very often, but doing the Times crossword every day probably doesn't challenge you in the same way. And when they've taken people who've got strokes, you've probably, many of you will have read about the amazing recoveries some people have made from strokes. The people who've recovered have had to work really, really, really hard to move that paralyzed arm, and they've done it quite often by restraining the good arm and forcing the brain to remap itself. But the, that is not universal. It, it, you have to really, really, really struggle to get the brain to accept that you can move that arm. And so I'm afraid, you know, for all of us, if we're going to keep our brains alive, we have to really challenge ourselves. And for all of us, that will be different. Be different but, but, but Camilla, we're here to get a few tips. Yep. So, <laughs> okay. So we do, we do difficult crosswords, but not as often. Well, okay. <laughs> I did, I did wonder, while I was getting to the end of writing this book, I did think, if you took every lesson in this book, you'd probably spend 24 hours a day. You know, you'd be like doing a crossword puzzle, doing Pilates, then you're doing a bit of mindfulness. I mean, you know, clearly, one can't spend one's life doing everything. You have to pick and mix. Um, all I'm saying is, the robust research shows aerobic exercise is absolutely paramount. Social connection is pretty important. Learning a new instrument or playing a new instrument, playing an instrument to a high level or learning a language are really, really useful. But there are shortcuts. One of them is some of the brain training apps that are coming onto the market that are in here. And one of them is going to be, I think, some of these anti-aging pills. Let's go back again to crystallized intelligence, the wisdom of elders. Tell me about the Zimbabwe women. Right, I love the Zimbabwe women. The Zimbabwe grandmothers. Yes. They are wonderful. So there was a psychiatrist called Dixon Chibanda working in Zimbabwe, one of very few psychiatrists in the country. Storm, storm coming. It's the grandmothers. Um, and it's the grandmothers at the door. He wondered why a patient of his hadn't turned up, and sadly, a few days later, he discovered that she'd killed herself. And when he rang the mother and said, why didn't she come to see me? She was supposed to have an appointment. The mother said she couldn't afford the bus fare to get to Harare to see you. And at that moment, Dixon realized that he couldn't just sit in a hospital and wait for people to come to him. He had to get out into the community and treat people in the villages. And he realized he hadn't got enough psychiatrists. There, was almost, there are almost none in Zimbabwe. And he had to find people he could recruit to be therapists. And he had an idea of what has become known as the friendship bench. He thought, if I can put a therapist out in the village on a bench where people can see them and come to them, that will be really helpful. And he tried different kinds of people to sit on that bench. And he knew what he was looking for. He needed empathy. He needed patience. He needed listening skills. And the people who turned out to be far, far the best were grandmothers. He started off recruiting, I think, 12 grandmothers in his own grandmother's village. In fact, she was one of them. He trained them. 
and they give six one-to-one -one therapy sessions. You come and you sit on the bench, and if they think you're suicidal, they will ring the hospital. But otherwise, they, they go through, you know, every week a, a, a therapy session. Now, what's fascinating is that when they did a randomized control trial, they discovered that these grandmothers really were as good as he thought they were, and that the people they were treating had fewer relapses and less depression and anxiety than the people who got the standard hospital care. So the reason I put this in the book was because there was something about the wisdom and the experience of those grandmothers that I think too often we overlook in our society. And from Zimbabwe to Holland, Denmark and to North London. In Holland, there is an extraordinary woman in a little town in Holland. She took over a care home. It's a pretty ugly concrete building. It's got lino floors. She's got the same budget as everyone else. She's got working class residents who don't pay top-up fees. She has created the most extraordinary environment. She's imported university students who live in the home. Her board, of course, everybody, everybody, which is one of these social entrepreneurs, you know, everybody's been against everything she did until she does it, and then they say, oh, yeah, we were in favour of that. You know, she's great. She's an absolute classic social entrepreneur. She's imported university students who do 30 hours a week with the residents, and she doesn't call them residents. She calls them neighbours. And she is opening the doors of that care home to the whole community. She's created a community garden. She's changing the way that her entire community looks at those people. And, you know, having been there, it's one of the most uplifting experiences. And it doesn't require, actually, enormous budgets. It just requires looking at people in a different way. When she took over that care home, I think there was a form which you had to fill in with 100 questions on it if you wanted to apply. Now, she has three questions. And I think the questions are, who are you? Who were you? And who are you going to be in the future? And it seems to me that there's something really profound in that, because it's saying to people, this isn't the end. Who do you want to be, and how are we going to work with you? There's another wonderful, there's loads of co-housing experiments um, in Denmark, and there's one in North London, where people are coming together to say, we want to help each other, we want to, we want to build a neighborhood together, and we have a shared philosophy. So there's a group of amazing women in North London who spent 18 years trying to build a co-housing development where they could live together. Some of them have died before that they were able to move into that development. Absolutely extraordinary. No local authority wanted them. No developer wanted to build anything for them. The local authorities were worried that bringing a whole lot of old people would raise their costs. The developers just didn't like it because they wanted to have private tenants and social renting tenants, and they couldn't get their heads around that. It is the most wonderful community of people. They look out for each other. They don't live on top of each other. They feel they've got control of their lives. And far from being a burden on the system, one of their philosophies is they don't want to be a burden on the system. They want to look after each other. And I think we've just got to begin to change our attitudes. I'm, I'm, great, I'm great in favour of co-housing. And I knew this group of women something like 20 years ago when they were trying to get the idea together. Uh, they were all single women, divorced or widowed or yes. just single. Um, and they, they had the most enormous strength of will to do it. Oh, I mean, lesser, lesser character, people with 
without that determination would never have pulled it off. No. So it does need the state or some institutions to give them some confidence. These women were triumphant when they did it, but they were 18 years older. Yes. Um, how but the point is that these are beginning to bed in. Be yes. And the more we talk about them. I mean, to me, most of what's in here was completely new. I mean, you don't read about this stuff, you don't hear about it. it it's all out there. And that's one of the reasons in the end that this... I made this into a book because I just felt people need to hear that. They need to know what's possible. And once you know what's possible, you realise that we can all do it. And I think that's quite powerful. We will return to robust and productive later years in future editions of the podcast. But can I recommend uh, Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott's book, The New Long Life, which was featured in the 2020 festival here in Hay? and is available on The Hay Player, alongside extraordinary interviews with great senior writers from Margaret Atwood and Toni Morrison to Tom Bergenthal, Edward Said, and thousands more, which you can find on our website. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the podcast, which was brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. See you next week.